Hello and welcome to Moving Beyond Stigma. I am your host, Michelle Crossman. Every episode, we are here to talk about all things mental health, and today we are diving into a much-needed conversation about eating disorders. Eating disorders affect people of all genders, sexual orientations, ages, socioeconomic class, abilities, races, and ethnic backgrounds. Our special guest today is Caitlin Axelrod, and she is the manager of community outreach and education at Sheena's Place in Toronto. Welcome, Caitlin, and thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I would love to start off, just I guess, tell us a little bit about yourself and what your role is at Sheena's Place. For sure. So yeah, I'm Caitlin. I use she, her pronouns. Um, like you said, I'm the manager of community outreach and education, um, which basically means that I do a lot of different things. Um, mm. We're a very small organization with only seven full-time staff at the moment. So I wear a lot of different hats. Um, I am a social worker. So Part of my role is group facilitation. Uh, the main service we provide at Sheena's Place uh, is group-based support for people affected by eating disorders and disordered eating. So I facilitate a few groups every week. I also supervise social work students and I lead trainings and uh, different educational initiatives in the community, uh, webinars and workshops and other things like that. Uh, and I support with social media as well. Um, so that's my professional side. Um, personally, um, you know, I, I like to be transparent that I don't have my own personal experience of an eating disorder. Um, many people are led to this field for that reason. Um, mm -hmm. But my interest in the field of eating disorders comes more from uh, knowing a lot of people growing up with people who experienced eating disorders, uh, family members, friends, um, and an interest in supporting people who struggle with um, this really serious and often misunderstood condition. Um, I also, uh, I guess more personally, like things about me, I have a dog, his name is Bernie. <laughs> He's really cute. Um, I, uh, have a plant next to me that I've managed to keep alive for like four years. So that's something wow. that I'm pretty proud of. That's an accomplishment. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's a metaphor for for something. I'm not quite sure yeah. what, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I love uh, camping and, and uh, being outside in nature as well. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, yeah, I find I've known a lot of people as well who have struggled with eating disorders. Um, growing up in a dance background specifically, you see a lot of it, um, you know, whether it's the training that you receive or just the images that you are told you are supposed to have. Um, it can be very, very difficult. I was extremely lucky and I had a very supportive um, group of teachers, but still being surrounded and in that um, environment can be so difficult. So I definitely know a lot of people who struggled, not only through dance, but other, other people in my life as well. Um, so that's really incredible that you took that and you've kind of, you've made a career out of that and you've been able to support people, you know, um, that's very, it's a, what's the word I'm thinking of? I guess inspirational, you know, you're taking something that's outside of your life and you're going deep and you're helping so many other people. So that's really great. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's definitely really difficult work, but I find yeah. that in many ways it can be quite rewarding as well. Um, 
so yeah, there's a reason I'm still in this field after several years. Um, yeah. And I don't plan on, on leaving this field anytime soon. That's great to hear. Yeah, it's definitely a field that I can imagine has a lot of difficulties entangled with it. Just there's so many different types and levels of disordered eating as well. And it can be so scary to deal with. So that's amazing that you're love what you're doing and you love being able to help these people and you're sticking it out and no that's really incredible thank you can i ask what are some of the biggest i guess challenges that comes to accessibility with um, eating disorder help and support that you've noticed yeah there are a lot of challenges around the accessibility of support i guess to start there is a really big lack of resources and funding that mm -hmm. is going towards uh, support and treatment for eating disorders. Um, I hate comparing eating disorders to other like physical or mental health challenges because I don't think that's necessarily a, a very supportive thing to do. But if mm -hmm. we do uh, look at how much funding other types of uh, physical and even mental health challenges receive um, like from the government uh, in our healthcare system, the amount that is received by people providing eating disorder support is so minimal, um, despite the fact that eating disorders are so widespread and so common. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with a misunderstanding around how they develop, um, who is affected, and what types of support can actually be helpful. Um, so a lack of funding and resources is a big one. Mm -hmm. um, as well, um, I guess related to that is the incredibly long waitlist times that do exist um, for programs that are available. So there are a few hospitals in Toronto, a couple hospitals in Toronto that provide um, eating disorder treatment uh, and the waitlists are incredibly long, sometimes years long. Mm -hmm. um, and people uh, will often not, not make it into the programs before it's too late. Other barriers uh, include a lack of like gender affirming and um, like culturally relevant and appropriate treatment and support options. Um, so the options that do exist tend to be very based in a Western medical model. And while that is supportive for some people, mm -hmm. it's absolutely not supportive and even sometimes harmful for other people. Yeah, um, yeah. So if we look at like the impact of, uh, of things like colonization of systemic racism on uh, the development of eating disorders, and these things are not brought into treatment and support, um, it makes it really difficult for people who are struggling to actually recover. Um, so those are just a few of the barriers that I'll, I'll name for now. Yeah, no, definitely. There's so much that it ties into it and not addressing those things within the treatment only does more harm. Yeah, that's very difficult. And I have heard um, even like the lack of beds that there are as well, which is probably why there are so many long wait lists that comes to getting treatment um, exactly. and just not having the programs available in more spaces, you know, not having the people available to give what's needed because we do not have the funding. Um, I've talked to a few different people about different mental health um, initiatives and organizations and 
eating disorders so often seems to be kind of on its own. From yeah, what which noticed. is ironic because yeah. you know most people who who live with eating disorders or disordered eating also experience other mental health challenges. It's rare that someone exactly. only experience that. So yeah, the fact that it's often, like you said, sort of off on its own is mm-hmm. is unfortunate and like not supportive of what what people actually need to recover. Exactly, because the it's a whole picture, right? Like there's so much involved and there's so much that can you know intertwine and affect it and not actually including this side of it can do so much damage to those who are seeking help you know um or even some people who do have disordered eating in some way but actually don't even realize it like um the aspect of control you know, and that's like maybe one thing you can control. So then you don't do it because of something else that's affecting you, you know, and that still falls into a category. Um, and then those things aren't necessarily looked at more deeply. Yeah, as they yeah should. I think um, there is so much disordered eating that is so normalized in our society. Yes. Um, whether it's dieting and restricting, um, even forms of, of purging or compensation like exercise, that's one that is incredibly normalized and even celebrated or glorified um, in many contexts. Yep. Um, and elements of, of binge eating as well may be normalized too. And so mm-hmm. um, whether it is about seeking control uh, or coping with difficult emotions, with trauma, exactly. um, you're right. Sometimes people might not realize that they actually do you have disordered eating or an eating disorder, which yeah. definitely would impact their uh, ability to seek support for that. Exactly. Cause I wouldn't even know that they should be looking or, you know, there's no one telling them, maybe you should look into this as well. Maybe you should find support for this too. It might help you overall. And if no one's telling you that, then you just keep going and you, you know, you just don't find the help that you need. What are some of the, I guess, the biggest um, misconceptions or stigmas that surround disordered eating and eating disorders? So I normally speak about three main misconceptions. There are definitely Mm -hmm. more. um, Yes. But I would say three big ones include, number one, that eating disorders are a choice. So this idea Mm -hmm. that a person is is simply making the decision to engage in certain behaviors, um, you know, again, whether that's restricting, binging, purging, um, and that it's as simple as just stopping if one chooses to stop. Um, but yeah. in reality, we know it's far from uh, from that. Um, mm-hmm. Just like no one chooses to have depression or schizophrenia or um, or any other mental health challenge, the same is true for eating disorders. And they're caused by so many different biological, psychological, and environmental factors. Um, so very briefly, you know, things like, uh, like genetics, um, Mm -hmm. as well as, um, like social contexts, like experiencing food insecurity, experiencing trauma, experiencing weight stigma, or other forms of oppression, like racism, transphobia, ableism, um, those, those things all would increase a person's risk of developing an eating disorder. Um, just generally speaking, like the messages that people get about food and bodies as they grow up, um, how family members or friends might comment on their body or other people's bodies. Um, 
and, and, and so much more. The mm-hmm. second misconception I would say uh, is that eating disorders revolve exclusively around food and weight. Yes. And while those things are, of course, a, a part of the picture for many, uh, many people, the symptoms themselves are serving so many different functions that go way beyond um, like just eating or, or uh, controlling one's weight in a specific way. Um, so most commonly, I would say that like dealing or coping with difficult emotions is the, the most common reason for someone to develop an eating disorder. Um, food and exercise are like accessible coping strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, maintaining control, like you said earlier, that can be a big one. Um, social reinforcement as well. If someone's getting <clears throat> like praise and attention um, for, for the ways in which their body might be changing as a result of their eating, that could definitely reinforce it. Um, so there are so many different things that can like perpetuate the eating disorder over time. Um, and then the third big misconception that um, I often will speak about is who is impacted um, mm. by eating disorders. So it's really not this stereotype that we often see portrayed in the media, which would encompass like a like a young, thin, white, affluent um, girl or or, um, or young woman, really all types of people develop eating disorders. So people um, of all races and ethnicities, ages, genders, sexual orientations, abilities, body sizes, income levels, like across any of the Mm -hmm. spectrums of identity, we will see eating disorders develop. And uh, in fact, you know, folks, like I mentioned earlier, who experience different forms of oppression or marginalization are more likely to experience eating disorders. So that's uh, the third, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a big one. Um, the amount of times I've heard just in general, oh, you don't look like you have an eating disorder. Yeah, that's, that's you know? a really common phrase, unfortunately, that, that yeah. people will hear. And it's so damaging because, I mean, as you can imagine, what, what that does is it, it tells someone that they are not worthy or deserving of treatment and support and that they actually need to get sicker quote-unquote sicker or lose more weight in order to get to that point of of being deserving or worthy of support and for so many people their bodies will yeah their bodies will never even reach a point of being emaciated yet they might be completely malnourished or um, in desperate need of treatment exactly again like a general practitioner or a general um, like emergency room or anything like that where it's not specialized where that specifically is so quickly looked over if you do not fit this certain stereotype that has been created about disordered eating. And if you don't fit into that, they won't necessarily take it seriously because they don't see it, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. Which is just terrifying and so discouraging as well because, again, when you don't know where to go necessarily for help, a lot of times those are the places that you go to first, because it's yeah. a general help, you know, they should usually know where to point you. If they don't know what to do themselves, they can point you in the right direction. That's kind of what they're there for. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then when they don't have that information or when they're not sharing that information, if they don't have that knowledge, then, you know, you're kind of just getting let down all over again. And then you can continue that spiral, which is just so unfortunate. I would love to know, I guess, ask if there's any specific changes like what would be the top couple changes that you would 
love to see within the, um, I guess, just the world, <laughs> you know, with how <laughs> things are handled, you know, um, if there is one or two things that you could really, really fight for and say, this is what we need. This is this would make a really big impact to get things started if there's anything for like sure. that. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Try to to just pick a couple. Um, Yeah. I mean, one relates back to what you were just saying about healthcare providers um, Mm. and like primary healthcare specifically. It's like you said, so logical that that would be the first place a person goes, whether it's their family doctor, a walk in, or even like the emergency room um, to seek support. And yet, so few doctors and primary care providers are appropriately and adequately educated on eating disorders or if they do have some education about it it's really outdated it still um, falls into the stereotypes that we were talking about Uh, and so one one change that I would love to see happening is um, more education and better education for primary health care providers and also mental health care providers too there are very few therapists who actually specialize in supporting people with eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if, you know, eating disorders can be given a lot more attention um, in training in school, uh, in programs that people go through, that I think would make a huge difference. Um, To your point earlier, too, about people, you know, going to see a doctor, being dismissed or overlooked, that is not only like harmful in the moment, but it it means that that person might be a lot less likely to then visit their doctor for other things too, right? Like they develop less trust of of medical providers. um, And that, of course, can lead to a lot of damaging consequences. Um, And within that education too, I think it's really important that um, doctors and healthcare providers are providing weight-inclusive care. um, So care that uh, is not prescribing weight loss as a cure for uh, ev- all all ailments and, and health yeah. challenges. We know that it's really not as simple as that and that those recommendations can be similarly damaging. Yeah. Um, something else that I would like to see change, I mean, this is even, I don't even know how to phrase this, but I guess just like changes... Um, broadly in society around like diet culture and fat phobia Mm -hmm. and like what bodies we see as the most desirable um this is a a way bigger societal shift that's needed that's not just about educating right (laughs) so this is i guess i'm thinking of a like utopian future where um like certain bodies are not um like held over others and that obviously relates to to racism, right? Mm-hmm. And, and to transphobia and, and so many other identities. Um, but a world in which like thin people are not seen as um, like more virtuous or more valuable than people exactly. living in larger bodies. That, yes. that would be an ideal and needed shift. Uh, oh, 100%. In the way that we see people. Yes. No, I fully, fully agree there. I think that would make such an incredible difference and going back to the educational point too like having i guess more mandatory information for people in all fields of health you know like whether it is the primary physician or it is a mental health worker just having updated information 
as you are learning and those also who have been in their jobs for, you know, decades getting updated, you know, when things do change and we do gain more information, making sure that these physicians and therapists and social workers and psychiatrists actually have that information as well so that they can grow in their fields safely and productively and then help the people who come to them, you know, more effectively and having all of that would be so, so amazing and beneficial. Mm -hmm. And, and Sheena's place in other eating disorder organizations like NEDIC, the National Eating Disorder Information Center. Um, we are trying to do a lot of that work in, in educating yeah. people, um, but it's, the need is just so great. And it's, um, yeah, it is. We're all these just little tiny organizations like trying to do what we can, um, but yeah. it's really hard or impossible to do everything. Yeah, because you're compete competing with like huge corporations and huge hospitals and huge like the everybody, you know, like so it's hard to really go up against that and see the difference. Um I do see a lot more out there, especially in getting information to schools and to even dance schools, because I also teach kids dance and you know, we were given all this information of like you know, if you see a student potentially struggling, like these are the steps that you can do and how not talking about it is actually much more harmful than trying to help and step in. And especially with, I think, disordered eating, a lot of people get scared. But having that information out there and given just guidelines, I guess, of like these are ways that you can bring up this conversation. These are healthy ways that you can approach this person, whether it be a friend, a student, uh, another coworker. And having information like that, at least in my experience, is very new <laughs> in, in a work yeah. setting, you know. Um, and I'm so thankful that it's there. Um, but yeah, it's extremely new to have that without having to do dig in and try and find resources yourself. You know, these things are available quite quickly if you go look it up, especially through Sheena's Place and through Netic, um, which is very amazing. So I'm personally extremely thankful to both places, <laughs> you know, because I know there's so much information provided, which is really, really great. Again, it's just going up against those places with more money and more funding and trying to have yourselves be heard because it's so important because it's eating disorder awareness week um is there anything about that that you would like to share specifically yeah so this year's theme or campaign is um transforming the narrative from asks mm. to action so for the last number of years Eating Disorders Awareness Week has been very focused on, you know, raising awareness, as the yes. title suggests, yeah. <laughs> um, which is obviously very important. Mm -hmm. um, but we feel as though, and, and when I say we, uh, I am a part of the like National Working Committee, who uh, has been working over the last several months to develop uh, the theme and and the campaign. Um, but we felt that that yes, there is still a ton of awareness lacking across society, but we need to move move beyond simply um, encouraging people to be aware. Um, yes. we, we need to encourage people to take action, whether that's contacting their uh, local politicians, um, mm -hmm. lobbying, um, you know, <laughs> the hospitals and the healthcare system, um, sharing their stories to break down stigma, 
Um, just like you said, having conversations about eating disorders and not being afraid to approach the, the subject. Yes. Um, these are all things that are so important and that this year's campaign strives to reinforce. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of like events or opportunities that people can get involved with, um, Sheena's Place always hosts a, a trivia night every year. It's really just Love a fun that. opportunity to raise a little <laughs> bit of money for mm. our organization. Um, since we are a nonprofit, we don't receive any government funding. Yeah. Um, we So we're hosting that. Um, more sort of connected and a little bit more seriously, I guess, there are a few other um, uh, events going on. There's a, a panel, a nationwide panel uh, happening about advocating for change on February 7th. Um, there are lots of resources that have been developed by the working committee. Um, one that I'm very excited about specifically, which, um, is a set of media guidelines. Um, so how to report on eating disorders responsibly would be like the theme of that. And so this yeah. is something that we'll be sharing with all media related organizations and people that we can think of. And we encourage like everyone to do the same. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure you and I'm sure listeners have have seen articles about eating disorders pop up in the last few months or years. And I don't know if you've noticed, but, you know, the images used, the headlines, the stories that are being told are often perpetuating these stereotypes and myths that we've been talking about. And exactly. so it's really like the media plays a huge role yes, in, um, in, in this whole thing. And so we're hoping that these guidelines will give folks a place to start. Maybe some journalists are afraid to approach the topic because they are worried of doing harm. And so the idea is that this will help people uh, report on eating disorders in a respectful, responsible way that will promote action. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and I think that's so necessary and could make such a difference because that's what, for those who aren't the ones, you know, doing the research who are not social workers who are not maybe mental health advocates, but like they still take in all this information on a regular basis because of the media. So if you're not mm -hmm. actively fighting against what you see in the media, that's all you're going to get, you know, and it's so inaccurate and so damaging. A lot of the images that are out there and the stereotypes that are out there um, and shifting that in the media honestly could have such a like a domino effect, you know, of making that conversation finally a little bit easier and getting rid of that stereotype because it's not true and it really, really um, makes it so much harder for everybody involved when that's all that's really out there to compare to and to see. And it's, you know, it's just, it doesn't give a clear image of what disordered eating really can be because it can be so many different things and really shifting that within the media especially I think could be really huge in helping that change move forward so I love that we're shifting from the awareness to the action I think that's such a smart move to make because the awareness will continue with the action right? Like it'll keep growing anyway. So taking that step and taking things further and really bringing that education forward and action forward, I think will make a really, you know, really, really, um, really big impact 
especially for those who are looking up to these organizations like Sheena's Place and Medic and looking to them for support and encouragement and then seeing that action happening, I think will be very beneficial. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Is there anything else that you would like to share before we wrap up? Um, anything else about Sheena's Place specifically or anything? I guess I can share a little bit more about us. I didn't provide mm-hmm. as much information at the beginning as I normally would. So Fair. Just yeah. quickly, <laughs> um, we, like I did mention, provide group-based support for people yes. with eating disorders and disordered eating. Um, what I don't believe I mentioned is that um, we support anyone ages 17 and older in Ontario. Um, so anyone who fits the, those criteria are welcome to register for our groups. Um, no eating disorder diagnosis or referral is needed. Um, so in this sense, we are quite low barrier um, compared to other eating disorder, um, free eating disorder programs in the province. Um, everything is free that we're offering um, to folks. And at the moment, most of our groups are taking place virtually. Um, We shifted, like many organizations, to a virtual model when the pandemic started. Um, And we're finding that this has Mm. uh, made our services so much more accessible to so many people. Um, We were exclusively in person before. And so anyone, you know, outside of downtown Toronto, um, people with all sorts of limitations, accessibility needs that we couldn't offer or accommodate in person. Um, a lot of those folks are now able to access uh, support online. So that's been amazing. Um, we are reintegrating some in-person options because online is obviously not accessible to every single person. Exactly. Um, so yeah, we, we plan to continue with that hybrid approach. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's that's all that I'll share for now. But I'm, I'm if anyone is interested in learning more, um, they can visit our website at sheenasplace.org um, and this like my contact information is on the website I'm always happy um, to answer questions to chat um, if any listeners are interested in like an educational uh, workshop or training for their team whether that's at a workplace or um, within a different type of community that's something that we can provide as well amazing thank you so much for sharing all of that information I think that's very important um Yeah, this was a great conversation, and I think we really opened up that dialogue a little bit that can be scary for some people to really dive in and talk about. I know even myself, that's one of the topics I've been nervous to talk about around friends like when I was younger, you know, again, because it did surround me and I I wasn't sure how to ever bring it up, you know. So now having more education and having more um, resources available online and having – you know, people coming in and sharing all of this is so, so beneficial. So thank you for taking the time out of your day and sharing it with me and all of our listeners. Um, It's very, very appreciated. Thank you so much for having me and for shedding light on such an important topic. Of course. Very, very happy we got to have this conversation. All right. We will wrap it up there. Once again, my name is Michelle Crossman, and this is Moving Beyond Stigma.